But this, this morning, I want to take us to the cross. And we're going to begin to read in Luke chapter 23 at verse 33. So find that spot and I will begin to read and you can follow along. We'll read down to verse 49. It says, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, they, there they crucified him, and the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood be, uh, beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he be, if he be Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked, uh, mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And a superscription also was written over him in letters of Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. And when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly, this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breast and returned. And all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. Let's pause for a moment and pray as we uh, consider this scripture this morning. Our Father, we are grateful to be able to come together as a church family uh, whether it's here in the parking lot or on our Facebook page, we're just thankful to uh, have a Bible, to know the Lord, to uh, know the wonderful truth of the cross and what it's meant to our lives. And we just pray now that you would help our hearts as we reflect on it more today, that, uh, God, you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, that you would make your word just really, uh, Lord, come alive in our hearts and that you would bless it to our growth and our edification. And we pray that somebody hearing that doesn't know you as their Savior, Lord, make it clear to them what the cross means and that they would be saved. And so, Father, we're just asking that you would please do a work in our midst today and we'll give you the thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. 
the message of the cross, I know, to pretty much all of you is something that's quite familiar. And whenever I come to a message like this, and because it's a, it's a key, uh, it's a key doctrine, uh, a teaching, something that we want to emphasize a lot, because it's so important, right? I mean, without the cross, where would we be? And yet, because of that, it's so familiar that I always think to myself, well, I know they know this story very well. What can I, what can I add? What can I, you know, and really, I don't want to add anything. Uh, we want only to have the scriptures. But I mean, what can I give them that uh, they don't already know? And the fact is, I, I'm not going to give you anything that you don't already know. But the truth of, the, of it is, is that it's something that we need to continually keep before our hearts. And we need to think upon, because as we do, we, I think, will have, uh, you know, a continued appreciation for what Christ did for us. And of course, obviously, there may be some that uh, perhaps it's still not clear, uh, who might be tuning in, might be listening. And if you don't know the Lord, um, this, is, this is such a key and central passage of Scripture for you. I want to read for you just uh, quickly a couple verses out of Corinthians. You don't have to turn to it. I'll just read them for you. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. In chapter 2, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. At the heart of what Paul was saying in that statement is he's basically said, if I wanted to sound to men of this world as wise, I would have talked about the things that are enticing to to men in their pride, to things that appeal to us. But frankly, the message of a, a man dying upon a cross, uh, it's a bloody scene, it's, a, it's, not, a, it's not a scene that uh, is, you know, one that we want to uh, envision too, too much in detail. And yet Paul said, I could have come, I could have spoke to you uh, things that, you know, would sound enticing, things that may have uh, intellectual value in your mind that you would, uh, you know, kind of relate to. But he said, it's not important to me to that you, uh, you know, you go away from this time together and, and think about how well the message was brought or how well, how, what a great message it was. What's more important, Paul said, is that you understand about Christ and about the cross. And so, uh, he said, I, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And it's with that kind of a heart I come this morning that uh, realizing that what's more valuable, it's not whatever kind of wise statement I could make. The most value is when we understand what the cross is all about. And so here we see in this scene, um, by this point as we're reading in Luke chapter 23, that Judas has betrayed Jesus. Um, Peter has denied him three times that he even knew him. Pilate has given in to the cries of the people, the crowd. Even though he felt that Jesus had done nothing worthy of death, Uh, They continually cried out, crucify him, crucify him, and Pilate capitulated. And now Jesus is hanging on the cross, as we've read. And, you know, I, I thought it was something when I found out, when I first read this many, many, many years ago, Uh, because to me, of course, the only cross I am concerned about is the cross of Jesus. But actually... If you read anything about the Roman Empire, uh, crucifixion was was kind of a common thing. Uh, It was not uncommon for the people within the Roman Empire, including in Israel, to go down the street and to see, in a public place, people hanging upon a cross. And when they hung on, you know, when they would see this scene of people being executed on crosses, Surely there were two questions that would come to mind immediately. One is, who is this on the cross? And what crime has he committed? I mean, that would be the obvious question you would want to know if you you weren't aware already. And when we come to the cross of Jesus, of course there were three crosses there. um, But we're only going to look at the one in the middle, the one upon which Jesus hung. And if we were to ask the questions, those two questions, who is this man upon the cross? Well, that answer is, is readily apparent for those who read the scripture. Because the Bible makes you know, utterly clear, absolutely clear, uh, who this man was. Of course, he was Jesus of Nazareth, but he was also the Son of God. And he was God the Son. All who followed him, we read there in the last verse that his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee uh, heard him many times make statements that would be uh, blasphemy if they were not true. In John chapter 8, Jesus said this statement when they were questioning him. He said, um, they were talking, of course, the Jews loved to... uh, talk about their heritage, back to Father Abraham. And Jesus said this, he said, Before Abraham was, I am. Which is quite an interesting statement, and obviously it was one that they, uh, not understanding, you know, mocked him for, saying, well, you're not even 30 years old or 50 years old. Uh, How could you say you, you were before Abraham? But it was a clear statement, not only, and he said it in, a, in an odd way, not, you know, we would have perhaps said, before Abraham was, I was. But he said, before Abraham was, I am. He existed before. And of course, that term, I am, harkens back to what God said to Moses, when Moses said, uh, who do I tell the people sent me? And he said, I am 
that I am. That was a title for God. And so we see a statement in which Jesus uh, said that He was before Abraham and He alluded to the fact that He is indeed God. In John chapter 5, which is another great chapter on the deity of Christ, He made this statement, He says, which is really astounding. He says that all men should honor the Son, speaking of Himself, even as they honor the Father, speaking of God. Now that's a really bold statement. I mean, could you imagine me saying to you, you must honor me in the same exact way as you honor God? Well, that would be foolish, that would be blasphemous, that would be uh, utterly contemptible. For somebody to put themselves in in such a, you know, to say basically, and and essentially is saying, I am God, you must worship me. But that is exactly what Jesus was saying. And only he had the right to say that, because of course he was in fact God. And we know that in John chapter 14 he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So the question of who it was, was on the cross, is easy to answer, and yet, Uh, with that answer, it's kind of um, a little bit mind-boggling. When you think about it, here is God dying on a cross. I know that's so familiar to us that we we probably uh, don't fully uh, catch the brunt of what that is about, but think about that for a moment. The God who created life The one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, is dying. Even the songwriter uh, grappled with that when he said, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I mean, it is an incredible thing to think about that God, the Creator God, the Almighty God, was put to death by men. It's an astounding thing. It's a, it's a strange paradox when you think about it. But we know that he was God, and of course men were putting him to death, which is, you know, it's a strange paradox because uh, how could man kill God? Well, only if God allowed it, right? And Jesus said this in John chapter 10. He said, I lay down my life for my sheep. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Pilate, when he was interviewing Jesus, at one point Jesus was like it says in the Old Testament, before his shears... He was dumb. The lamb before his shears was dumb, meaning he opened not his mouth. And in in an awkward time of silence, as Pilate was questioning Jesus, and Jesus was remaining silent, pleading the fifth, uh, uh, Pilate said this. He said, don't you understand? This is my paraphrase, but he said, don't you understand that, that I have the power to put you to death or I have the power to set you free? And Jesus said, you have no power at all except it were given you from above. And so, 
Who, had, who was it that was on the cross? Of course, it was God. And He was still in charge. He was laying down His life for the sheep. So we answer the question, who it, who it was, and then the second question that would be uh, logically asked is what was his crime? Why is this person on the cross? And it's so important that we understand the why. Now, of course, when you look in, the, in our text, and you look at the cross, uh, to find out what was his crime, that's a harder question to ask, or to answer, because Pilate repeatedly had said that he was innocent. Look at verse 14, if you're still in Luke chapter 23. Um, Pilate said, You have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people, and behold, I have examined him before you, and have found no fault in this man. If you look at verse 15, again he says uh, he had sent him to Herod, Herod sent him back, and Pilate said, Neither or no, not, nor yet Herod, for I sent, him, I sent you to him, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. So in other words, both under, you know, not, and Pilate was not sympathetic with Jesus. Herod was not a, a follower or a fan of Jesus. They weren't on the same political uh, side or anything of that nature. They simply said, we have examined, we have judged, we've looked at the evidence, we have uh, questioned all of the witnesses, and as far as we can tell, this man has done nothing worthy of death. In verse 22, he repeats again, when he asked, uh, who do you want me to release, Barabbas or Jesus? They said Barabbas, and and uh, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. And he said, why? What evil hath he done? I found no cause of death in him. And yet the crowd was relentless. Um, over and over again, the testimony is given of the innocence of Jesus. Even Judas, who betrayed him, you recall later he brought the money back to the, to the uh, Sanhedrin and he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. All the way down at the end of the chapter, we read in uh, verse 47 where the centurion said, Truly, certainly, this is a righteous man. And he had watched many men die. But there was something about Jesus, something about the way he died, something about uh, what he saw there on the cross convinced him that this man was not worthy of death. Even the thief, remember the thief on the cross when uh, one thief was railing upon and uh, making fun and mocking Jesus and the other one said, Hey, be quiet. Do you not fear God? Don't you see we are dying and we're dying because we deserve it, but this man has done nothing amiss. And so all through the record, when you try to determine what was Jesus' crime, why was He on the cross, the answer is, He had done no crime. He had done nothing wrong. Why then was He dying on the cross? Well, the answer comes in our memory verse. You thought I forgot, didn't you? <laughs> the memory verse we had for today is in um, 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, where Paul said, I delivered unto you that which I first received. I'll quote it, not exactly probably. But the, the point I will quote correctly is he said that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. And that's the only answer as to why Jesus was on the cross. The only answer is because He was dying not for any crime that He had done, not for any wrong that He had committed, but for our sins. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And I, again, I know that that is a, a very uh, familiar phrase. We hear it all the time. But I was, I think I mentioned this recently, I was 18 years old, and, and I had grown up from birth. I had grown up in church. And so for 18 years I heard my mother make that statement, Jesus died for our sins. And yet I never understood it. For 18 years I did not understand that phrase. And I'm afraid so many today in Canada... Uh, still do not really, they've heard it, they know that's what we teach, they know that's what the Bible says, but they honestly don't know what does that even mean, Jesus died for our sins. What does that mean? Peter said it in 1 Peter uh, 3.18, he said, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Listen to what he says in chapter 2. This is Peter again. He said, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Hebrews 9.28 says, For So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. He was the sin bearer. Now, perhaps that phrase might help you a little bit in understanding when it says He died for our sins. He was bearing in His own body on the cross our sins. It means He took our sins upon Him. He took the penalty of our sins upon Him. All that sin would bring to you and I, Jesus bore. He carried. He took it upon Himself. The idea of sin-bearing is, of course, alien to the modern mind. And so, um, I think it might take a little bit of an Old Testament lesson to help us understand it. That someone other than the sinner might bear the sins of that one in order that the sinner might be forgiven. You see, that's the, that's the message, that's the idea. And it's found all through the Bible, even in the Old Testament. Uh, it really is far back as the garden, when God clothed Adam and Eve with skins of animals. Um, it doesn't go into detail there, but if you just read between the lines or think for a moment, of course those animals had to die to cover the sin, what had caused Adam and Eve to be ashamed? What did that caused Adam and Eve to be separated from God? And God t- took uh, the initiative to 
cover them. When you think about Abraham who brought his son Isaac to the mount and, and uh, when Isaac asked him the question, I have, you know, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where's the lamb for the offering? And, and Abraham said, God will provide himself a lamb. And the ram was, was caught in the thicket was offered instead of Isaac. And so this picture is found throughout the Old Testament. It probably comes to its climax as far as the, uh, the illustration is concerned in Leviticus chapter 16. I happen to be reading in Leviticus in my daily devotions. And in chapter 16 it tells us about the Day of Atonement. And in that passage there are there's the command to the priest to take two goats. One goat was to be offered, uh, killed, and sacrificed. The other one was called the scapegoat. That's exactly where we get that term. The scapegoat goat was left alive, but the Bible says that... Um, let me read for you a couple of verses here. It says, And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And it goes on to say, Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the scapegoat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions in all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him into the wilderness. You see, Symbolically, when the priest would lay his hands upon the, that goat and confess all of their sins, they would, the picture was transferring his, their sin to this scapegoat that was to carry those sins, bear them away. And so the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they were well familiar with the idea of a sin bearer and a scapegoat. They... They uh, anticipated. The prophets spoke of one. Remember in uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Very uh, familiar, I was going to say famous, and I think it's famous. A very famous passage of scripture. And, and a verse you know very well where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, they, the prophets spoke of one who upon the Lord would lay the iniquity. And then comes the New Testament where John the Baptist uh, pointed to Jesus one day as he passed by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God which, what? Taketh away the sin of the world. And so, when we ask the question, why was Jesus dying on the cross? The answer comes, He died for our sins. But what does that mean? It means He bore our sins upon Himself. And He died for them in our place. So Jesus died as an example, but not only as an example. He died to take our sins away. Now, again, you may come to that point and say, okay, well, I, I guess I understand that, but um, I'm not sure I need that. I'm not sure I, uh, you know, that I need to have somebody bear my sins. 
The problem with that is that so many times in our society today, uh, we don't even really have much sense of what sin is. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, we read a moment ago, He said several things. Uh, He said, I thirst. He said, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He he talked about uh, how John should take care of Mary, his mother. He told the thief that this day he would be with him in paradise. But Jesus also said this. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's an incredible statement when you think about, we've said who this is, this is God in the flesh, this is the Son of God, God the Son, and yet at this point, and I think in a sermon recently on prayer, we talked about the fact that Jesus always referred to God as the Father. You know, whenever he said, our Father, which art in heaven, and he would talk to him about uh, all the time, he would mention the Father. But here he says, in this one exception, not Father, but my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the only answer to that is because in bearing our sins upon Himself, God who is holy, the Bible tells us in the book of Habakkuk that God cannot look upon sin. God is righteous. And He cannot look on sin. He cannot excuse sin. He must punish sin. And again, the world has such a hard time with that concept. Because we, we don't think of ourselves much as sinners. We all know that we're not perfect. Nobody uh, is claiming perfection, but, but we don't think of it in the same terms of, as which the Lord does. And I think increasingly more so in our day and age. I was listening recently to a a podcast. uh, It's called The Art of Manliness. And ironically, it was suggested to me by one of the ladies in the church. But uh, I listened to it from time to time. And this week while I was doing newspapers, there was a a podcast episode that talked about, and I think the, the, um, the title was, uh, why is it so hard to admit you're wrong? And this was a psychologist or some kind of, you know, he wrote a book. And it's always funny to me when they they study these things academically and come up with all kinds of terms. And, and what he described is nothing more than uh, the fact that we all feel some guilt when we do wrong. And he, he used this term cognitive uh, dissidence. That was his term for guilt. And basically he explained that what you think about yourself when it doesn't match the way you live, uh, you have to to, uh, reconcile that that dissidence. So in other words, we think of ourselves as very moral, we think of ourselves as good, we think of ourselves as clever, we think of ourselves as intelligent, uh, we think of ourselves just simply as good people. And when we do things that are not good things that we know we shouldn't do, how do we reconcile those two things? And in the podcast they explain that uh, people, they change their attitudes about things. He, he gave this illustration, I'll just give you one illustration, try to be quick with it, but he, he talked about cheating on, on a test. 
And he said, you know, they did this study and they had people, uh, you know, say, how, how much do you think, how bad is cheating from one to ten? And people, you know, in the beginning, many of them said cheating is wrong, cheating is something you shouldn't do. But then given a certain scenario in which, you know, to get past this test in order to advance into the place you want to be in life and the opportunity to cheat was there, uh, would they cheat? And many of them did. And then later on, when asked about cheating, how bad it was, uh, their attitude toward cheating dramatically changed. It's not nearly as bad as they thought it was. Everybody does it. It's justifiable. And so uh, they no longer looked at cheating as all that wrong. And that's exactly what we do as human beings. And we've become so good at it in our day and age, things that your parents used to think were horrible are now completely acceptable. And everybody justifies it. And here's the sad reality of that. When we do that in our minds, the cross of Christ means very little to us. Because someone dying for our sins doesn't feel all of that all that important. But the fact is, if you get into the Bible and you begin to see what God says about sin, And really all you have to do is look at the cross. The cross, we said there were two questions. Who's there and and why is he there? But there's also two statements. The cross is an incredible statement on the wonderful love of God. That God would die for your sins and do it willingly. Right? But it's also a statement of how despicable sin is. Because if Jesus would die for you, He loves you, but if He had to die, that means that your sin is quite uh, quite dreadful. The dreadfulness of sin. And that's what I think we've lost in, in our modern society. We've lost the dreadfulness of sin in our, our hearts. Our conscience have been so soothed, so calloused, by repeated justifications of sin. But when you do come... And here, you remember I told you a few moments ago that it took me 18 years to understand what it meant that Jesus died for our sins. Not that that statement is difficult to understand, but I just didn't see the need for it. But once I recognized, and God, by His mercy and grace, brought me into the conviction that my sin was against God and it was wrong. And it made me, it put me in a position of being not right with God and worthy of judgment, worthy of condemnation. And all of a sudden, that phrase, Christ died for my sins, became very important. And the meaning of it became clear. And the glory of it became real. And when I cried out to God, I didn't. I no longer tried to justify. I no longer tried to say, you know, as we always do, it's not that bad. Everybody does it. it. You know, we're okay. 
when I said, no, one day I'm going to die and I'm going to stand before God and God's going to judge me. Not on the standard of, of relative goodness, but on the standard of His perfect holiness. And then it was very important that somebody would bear my sin because no educating uh, ourselves can fix the problem, no uh, amount of religious activity, there's no, there's no bonus points for respectability, there's no, uh, you know, none of these things make up for it. Our sins make us guilty before God and, and yet God loved me enough to send His Son to die in my place. And so, that's the message of the cross. I know it's a message you know very well. But we need to come to grips with it continually that we are sinners. And the sooner you admit that, the sooner you know that, the better off you'll be. You say, you know, I think about it for a second. I said that there's two statements. One is the cross speaks so clearly of the love of God. And the cross speaks so clearly of the dreadfulness of sin. And really, it's not until you, as I, I guess I've already kind of stated this, but think about it again. It's not until you really see the second that you appreciate the first. Once you understand, uh, you, you don't understand God's love as much as you should until you understand how sinful we really are. When we can see how rotten, how wicked, how ungrateful, how selfish, how proud, how uh, evil we've been, and then to know that God would love us, a holy, righteous, just God would still love us, and go to the lengths of sending His Son to die for us, then only then you begin to grasp a little bit of how much God loves you. And we grow in that understanding. And so pride will keep you from coming to to Christ. What is it, you know, that pride keeps people out of the kingdom of heaven. What is it that brings us into the kingdom of heaven? It's faith. It's to believe. Jesus told the story of two two sons. He said the father came and he he told his son to do something and he said, I'll, I'll go do it. But then he didn't do it. And then he said to another son, go do this. And he said, no. But later on he repented and he went and did it. He said, which one of these sons obeyed his father? And of course it was the second. Who started out uh, rebellious. He didn't pretend any kind of obedience. He, he said what his heart really wanted. He didn't want to do it. But later on he repented. And, and Jesus said this. This was the conclusion. He was talking to the religious Jewish people and he said, I tell you that the publicans and the harlots will go into the kingdom of heaven before you. Because as long as we uh, think of ourselves as mostly obedient and good, we never have need to repent. But when we see we've not obeyed, we haven't really followed, then we need to repent. And we, we believe upon the Lord. You see, that's what saves. It's not religion that saves. It's not good altruistic deeds that saves. It's faith in 
the sin bearer. Faith in the one who died for us. Now next Sunday, we'll celebrate not only the fact that He died for us, but He arose from the dead. And in that, of course, we see that, I think we see several things. We see that, of course, He had power over death. And then He can give to you and I eternal life. Because He's taken care of the sin, He's able to give us eternal life. And it also tells us that His sacrifice for your sins was accepted. The Father received it. And it was acceptable. And so when Jesus said it was finished, all that was necessary for your salvation was accomplished. And that was proven by the resurrection. And so that's what we'll look at next week. But I want you to spend some time at the cross today understanding who we are before God and understanding what God did for you and I. And may it draw our hearts into a deeper faith and love for Him. Let's pray together.